Scourge Asimar. Which is the Asimar who has the fire aura that burns everything. Is it radiant damage? It's radiant damage. Who has the radiant aura that burns everything. home theater in new york city i'm your host shane and i'm your host ishan and welcome to episode 76 of total party thrill a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours in this episode we're talking about how to put the best parts of your favorite tv shows books and video games into your campaigns but first the party finds heresy that's with air quotes in the dynasty unwarranted campaign and later the crucible is bathed in cleansing flame in the character creation forge so before we get to that a sad note to start our episode today. We are recording on December 28th. Just a very few days after the death of Carrie Fisher. Yeah. Whom all of you know better as Princess Leia. But also, if you recall, she was uh, in the Blues Brothers. Yeah. And uh, that movie with Chevy Chase, Under the Rainbow. <laughs> she wrote Postcards from the Edge. She uh, had a great one-woman show, Wishful Drinking, which came out only a few years ago and most recently she uh, came out with a memoir the princess diarist mm-hmm. which basically recounts a bunch of her stories from on the set of star wars did you know she had an affair with harrison ford i think everybody knew that <laughs> officially well no <laughs> <laughs> apparently he didn't want that to be written about though huh weird yeah yeah, so uh, she was an amazing woman and I think touched many of our lives, uh, especially amongst geeks, so she will be missed. Yeah, I think it, it is necessary to put in perspective the kind of character that Princess Leia was in 1977. She is one of the leaders of the rebellion. Stormtroopers show up, and what does she do? She ridicules them. Yeah. And then finds out they're there to save her, and then she ridicules them some more. Uh-huh, yep. <laughs> She's also an orphan who watches her father perish before her eyes. And her entire planet explode. Mm-hmm. She keeps it together. Yeah. And, and then gets tortured mm-hmm. and still doesn't give up the Death Star plans. Then she also finds that her true father is the biggest villain in the galaxy. Who tortured her and blew up her, the person she considers her father. And somehow she still manages to show up, you know, a few years later in episode seven and not be completely destroyed as Let, a person let's just say even in the eu uh she's like the only person who didn't fall to the dark side at any at any point yeah and after the courtship of princess leia she earned it <laughs> <laughs> also killed job of the hut that's true single-handedly uh-huh that's how you deal with tyrants and fascists <laughs> So in less somber news, uh, I have to do some shameless self-promotion for two weeks. Uh, The Compendium of Micro... Two whole weeks, really? Hey, that's the title of the Compendium of Micro Games that is now available on DriveThruRPG, of which I was one of 14 designers who wrote one of 13 games in the collection, which we created uh, with two weeks to design the games, and all of the proceeds benefit the ACLU. So it's a uh, it's up for ten dollars, which is the standard donation for the ACLU. So it's kind of a, a way to get um, a little something for your donation. Yeah, and I think it's fitting that the money is going to the ACLU because I don't really 
agree with the fact that you created a NASCAR role-playing game, but I support... What do you not agree uh, with? <laughs> I think it's wrong. I think it's wrong. <laughs> okay. And it's and it's it's bad for America. Yeah. Keep, okay. But but the be, discourse that allows you to to create that and put it out there so that people can ridicule it, I think, is important. Okay. Uh, so so this is again you wanting to keep sports out of RPGs, right? It's not a sport, but yes, also. <laughs> I do not like what you say, sir. <laughs> well, the next micro RPG I'm writing, the pen is my dear. You'll have a chance to do that. I thought it was the penis, my dear. Uh, it might be. That will be one of the roles. <laughs> Nat 20s. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, Shane, is, I'm getting a little giddy taking my turn to do this. Where are we in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign? We are in the prologue. So, if you found us looking for Eberron uh, and our recap of the Morning Glory campaign, then we have finished that from episode 0 to episode 73. Um, so, the entire back catalog is available for you to listen to. But now we have moved on to our Rogue Trader game, Dynasty Unwarranted, which we played using the Dark Heresy 2nd Edition system by Fantasy Flight Games. So this prologue finds the player characters as members of an Inquisitor's warband, Inquisitor Bones. They have been delivered to the agro world of Novabella. It is uh, primitive by future tech standards, uh, and it is overdue on its tie to the Imperium of Man. So we're just going to exterminate us the place, right? Uh, no, you're not going to do that. No, because uh, you need that tithe. Uh, you are gathering a war host in this section oh, uh, for a crusade. So the Inquisition received a letter from a Ministorum priest warning that there was heresy afoot on Novabella and encouraging them to investigate because Novabella is a proud and good planet that's worthy of saving. Mm, heresy and no tithe? I gotta say, I don't know why we're not exterminating. Well, you do know one thing. There's no astropath on the planet because you keep trying to reach it that way, and it's not its not going anywhere. Uh, so I guess we're going to need to actually travel there, huh? Mm-hmm. Mm, I don't think we have an, a ship capable of warp travel. You'll be delivered by a rogue trader. Uh, they, I, I, I don't trust them. Nope. Quite honestly. Well, you shouldn't, but Inquisitor Bones trusts them, and so you're going to go. I don't trust Inquisitor Bones either. You shouldn't, but Inquisitor <laughs> Bones tells you to go. <laughs> I guess we're going. So, yes, so you are dispatched to Novabella to the capital, Recompense. It is, as promised, a primitive, low-tech farming village, uh, little more than that, uh, where the harvested grain from the surrounding area is processed into ration bars, which form the Imperial Tithe. And when you get there, something is a bit odd, Ishan. There's no one around. It is empty, as though everyone just sort of disappeared in the midst of their day. This must be the heresy. Let's investigate. Almost certainly. Yes. And what did you find when you investigated? Well, of course, we checked out the church because heretics usually like to desecrate it. And it turns out everyone was there. Apparently, it's the Sabbath. Yeah. Well, no, <laughs> actually, it is not, as you would soon find out. Uh, this is a, a multiple times a day affair on Novabella. Oh, dear Emperor. Yeah. The faith is strong, if it is indeed the Imperial faith. It sort of kind of is. Well, it's a it's a m local adaptation thereof. Right. The what, the Grain Father, was that? Uh, the Harvest Father. Sure, yeah, the yeah. Grain Father. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, seeing everybody in church and not wanting to interrupt or have to deal with any of that, mm -hmm. you decided to 
move forward uh, to the administratum building, sort of the administrative uh, arm of the Imperium. Right, the people in charge who are not currently in church, obviously. Right. And what did you find inside? Uh, we met up with uh, Viceroy Martin Kathrinkus. Yes. Who was not forthcoming with the information that we wanted. Uh, well, you were a little rude, if I recall. Uh, well, yeah, but we're Inquisition. Well, yeah, but to everyone else, you're just six offworlders who showed up unannounced and started asking questions and making accusations. You should always assume that that is the Inquisition. Mm, yeah, but I feel like there's going to be a lot of fakers if you assume that. <laughs> well, my character, Friends Job, didn't roll too well in his intelligence score, and so he's a very forthright man. And he also saw that Catherine had a bolt pistol uh-huh. and wanted it. And a bolt pistol is a pretty powerful weapon for you in your low level state very true Cathinkus was not uh helpful so we decided to get him out of the way so we could talk to someone who would be more helpful yes and how did you do that I hit him with a warhammer uh-huh and uh and then what happened he died oh he shot back actually well, yes, yeah, yeah um and then i believe one of you flashed your inquisitorial rosette mm-hmm. identifying yourselves as oh, members right. of the inquisition and then he put he lowered his bolt pistol he dropped his bolt pistol right. to the ground and then what happened i mean friends job didn't really notice so he hit him again with his warhammer mm-hmm. yeah yeah and then he died yeah yeah so you murdered him eh, I, yeah i'm pretty sure the inquisition can't murder people mm. you can though in my defense Rolled very low intelligence, and this was a one-shot, right? supposedly. That was the driving <laughs> factor in most decision-making. For all of this. This was a one-shot. Yes. So it turns out, if you're going to murder somebody, Viceroy Kathrinkus, pretty good dude to murder, because in his office you found quite a bit of useful information, or what you thought might become useful. So you found a bunch of data about the tithe that dated back for centuries, which is helpful considering you're trying to investigate the tithe. You also found uh, files from the Strictionists, the uh, Arbites, the police force, on the death of the planet's astropath, which confirmed what you thought, that the astropath had died, given that you had no communication with them. And then you also found an encrypted journal by Harvester Prelate Felicimo, the very priest who sent the initial letter to the Inquisition some 20 years ago. This is all very complicated information that Friends Job doesn't really understand. However, fortunately, there were other people in the party who were much better equipped. Yeah, so you guys decided to start decrypting the journal, found that it was uh, rather out-of-date encryption, and that uh, it was going to take some time. So in the meantime, I think you decided you were going to pin uh, Viceroy Cathinkus as a heretic. Okay, let me be clear. We did not decide we would pin him as a heretic we knew he was a heretic well you decided he was a heretic for owning a bolt pistol and for not cooperating right away he did cooperate right away he dropped his pistol as soon as you told him you were in- inquisitors or inquisition mm, yeah but he was basically already dead at that point <laughs> yeah i mean he was half dead the second shot killed him. imperial justice <laughs> uh yeah but anyway you uh you use that to justify the murder and uh, and you, you resolve to move on and just go ahead with that cover story. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you heard a voice, a very loud, booming voice from, from a laud hailer uh, not too far away that said, Offworlders, lay down your weapons and come out with your hands up. You are under arrest. And we'll find out what we decided to do next week. So this week we are talking about adapting from other media for your role-playing games.
part of the appeal of playing RPGs in the first place is, you know, creating new worlds and new personalities. And it gives you the opportunity to experience things that you can't anywhere else. But sometimes all you really want to do is recreate those beloved settings or stories or characters that you've seen elsewhere or experience them in a different kind of way. So that might mean you take the little bits that you love and add them into your home campaign all the way to maybe you just file those serial numbers off and use those stories again wholesale as your campaign. Yeah, so there's basically three ways that you can kind of approach this. First is to copy. The second is to invert. And the third is to just take inspiration. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the best way to copy from other media. I think some of you might be feeling like it's kind of cheating to copy off, say, you know, your favorite novel. But if imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, you should be flattering the hell out of your favorite stories. Uh, Because remember, one of the reasons that they resonate with you and probably a ton of other people is that they're really entertaining. They've already been packaged in this form. Uh, They already have, you know, proper arcs and formats and pacing that you can basically mirror or, or, or copy or use in your campaigns. Yeah, or uh, plot twists or reveals are always good ones too because they can be hard to come up with on your own. Exactly. So, of course, the easiest thing to do is just take the information and change the name and use it. So, like, I, after watching Rogue One, no spoilers here, uh, I definitely know that I am going to steal uh, the droid K2SO. I'm going to steal his personality and use him as uh, the personality for like a pithy retainer, you know? Mm-hmm. That would work. I feel like lots of RPG characters over the next six months will have that similar personality. Exactly. Now, I'm not going to make him a droid because I think that would be far too obvious. You know, his particular kind of snark uh, and his dry responses to situations are something that I think will work really well in a fantasy setting. I I like the fact that he can kind of sort of stand to the side and point out absurdities, uh, maybe even to a a meta level that uh, are harder to come by in in maybe more serious fiction, but it's a nice counterpoint. Yeah, he he kind of almost breaks the fourth wall. Yeah, very close. Very, very nearly. Yeah, it's kind of a nod and a wink. Yeah, another good idea is is reusing villain schemes. Because a lot of times a villain's motivation is easy to identify with, but what he actually does to put that motivation into use is a little more difficult to come up with and and the tropier the better right like there's a reason that orc hordes invade yeah (laughs) right like that came from somewhere that isn't original right space laser like that go for it everyone uses a space laser yeah like giant weapon of mass destruction like that that's well actually pulled from history but also like <laughs> you know secret base <laughs> all of these yeah, things in a volcano mm-hmm. uh, weather machine uh i think of superman 3 and office space use the same sort of like bank fraud scheme and of course office space calls out like isn't that what happened in superman 3 yeah it turned out great <laughs> <laughs> but it it's already happened in both of these things and it's like it's a common enough thing where if you use it people won't necessarily necessarily say oh that is from you know this one piece of media that i saw elsewhere it's oh it's the thing that gets used everywhere fine it's that bank fraud scheme i get it yeah and so so the scheme is you steal fractions of a penny when the bank software rounds right so that your imperceptible amounts on average stolen from a variety of people on every transaction 
is more difficult to identify than, say, robbing the vault. Yeah. And, you know, all of you listening now, even if you haven't seen either of those movies, are probably going, oh, right, that scheme. Mm -hmm. So in the same way, it means that even if your players don't recognize the source that it, it comes from, you will need to explain less about, like, how it works exactly. Yeah. Or the other players will jump in and be like, oh, no, I get it. It's like this. Yeah. Right? Which exposition from player to player is always more fun for players than from the GM mm -hmm. because players hate listening to the GM speak. <laughs> you can also steal particular plot twists. So in the previous example, like forget the bank scam, right? But the idea that a heist goes really well, but then it actually ends up going too well is a great twist that you get in office space. Yeah, it's like we're getting so much money. The account that that's receiving all these funds is growing too quickly. Our bank is going to notice something. Yeah, exactly. So if you haven't seen the movie, like the plan is that over the next like several years, they will slowly amass these fractions of, of pennies and, you know, they'll make a tidy sum. But over one weekend, they make, I think, $300,000. Yeah, something which, crazy. Yeah. Which is even worse than like $1991. I know. <laughs> Uh, but think about your party wants to steal a car. Well, maybe it goes off perfectly. And in fact, it doesn't even take all that long. You know, you don't need to throw that many complications in because the actual complication is once they steal the car, there's a suitcase full of cash in the trunk. Or drugs. Yeah, whatever. It's or the gone in 60 seconds. <laughs> Did you ever think why a car was that nice was sitting in a neighborhood that shitty with the keys in it? <laughs> no, I thought it was great luck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a nice twist that you didn't have to come up with on your own but it also means that in planning that session you're probably going to be able to take a little bit of a break too because you can let your party cruise through uh, a great deal of the session thinking like they're doing amazingly oh man we're rolling so well i can't believe this is this is going to be like a perfect score mm -hmm. i think the key to this one and, and as you're tying multiple of these sources together is you want to draw different pieces from different sources because it's unlikely that one player will have seen and will recognize immediately all of these and manage to piece together what's next. Whereas if you're stealing a single scheme top to bottom, you know, twist included from a single source, someone recognizes it, they're going to start predicting what happens. Yeah, like take the end of Ocean's Eleven where, oh, it turns out like they stole the money for us. Right. Not the entire scheme from the very beginning of the movie yeah exactly like fake vault great thing to steal from oceans 11 mm -hmm. the whole scheme probably too convoluted and you're going to have your players just acting out oceans 11 now and they're not going to remember exactly how it goes and they're going to screw it up they might not even notice that it's the oceans 11 move if it's in the midst of some other plot right but speaking of fake vaults that brings us to the next thing you should copy locations absolutely I mean, think about it. Everybody does this. There's no cantina that is not the most Isley cantina. There's no bar that isn't a wretched hive of scum and villainy. Yeah. Like, it, that's <laughs> basically where adventurers hang out now. <laughs> and you know what? That's fine. Because that's what everyone expects. Mm -hmm. Or, of course, fake vault. You know, what does a fake vault look like? Well, when people begin imagining that, they think of Ocean's Eleven. Mm -hmm. You know, we built it in a warehouse. Right. Go for it. Use it. You know, it, it has occurred in enough places now that people aren't going to point at you and go, oh, really? This? Right. Yeah. And I mean, that one specifically, I think you want to keep in mind, the reason that works in Ocean's Eleven is that you had a reason for that existing and you knew about it before it was used as the twist. You saw them rehearsing the scheme in their warehouse. Mm -hmm. They didn't tell you they were going to film it 
and that was going to be part of the actual execution, right? So that's where that twist really hits home is that a twist for a twist's sake is fine, but a twist that's been foreshadowed is that much more valuable. Yeah. So when you're copying, just remember pretty much anything is up for grabs, right? You can take a character, you can take a location, you can take a plot twist. If it's something that's less well known, you can take a a riddle wholesale, right? I probably wouldn't take one of Bilbo's riddles from The Hobbit because those are very famous and very specific. Mm-hmm. But it's for if it's from a book that you are pretty sure few other people have read before, or uh, I've said before, I have often used like poems, mm-hmm. Emily Dickinson or Langston Hughes, as uh, answers to riddles or you know riddles themselves, and. Nobody notices that because like each of them have hundreds and hundreds of poems. Yeah. The other thing you can copy, and this is stretching the limits of other media, but if you can copy encounters from other role-playing games. Huh. Have you ever done that, Shane? Oh, yeah. In fact, we'll get to that (laughs) in a few episodes of the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign. (laughs) It works very well, and it's also... One of the reasons that Shane and I specifically don't do reviews of Adventure Paths, because sometimes it's really helpful not to have read it. Right. So that maybe if someone runs you through it, or I don't know, a version of it. Yeah. Steals the entire first act. (laughs) You won't notice. (laughs) Right. But this is a great way to stretch your gaming dollars further, because if you see an encounter that really works well in one system, you can often adapt its bones into a different one, even if you've got to change out stat blocks and that sort of thing. Yeah, it's definitely something we take into account when we do review products. How usable is this elsewhere? You know, when we were talking about Volo's guide, you know, how much can you sort of change the names to protect the innocent uh-huh. and, and use them elsewhere, right? The Hobgoblin lore in Volo's guide is perfect for Sparta. Yep. Okay. So what if you don't want to copy? What if you want to invert from a, a different source? Well, this is equally lazy. Uh, and I personally love it. You know, you take one of your favorite things and just twist it upside down. Sometimes this actually means literally turning it upside down. Like take a map of Middle Earth, turn it upside down, and now you have a new map. Wow. <laughs> That's a new level. <laughs> or reverse the water and the land, and now you have a new map. Done. Perfect. Or, you know, you, you can go further afield with this, obviously. Like, Put your dwarves in sky castles rather than underground, and now suddenly everything seems very different. But you don't have to make up an entirely new fantasy race. They're dwarves. Right. The only thing different is they live in castles in the sky. Yeah, I, I also like the idea of, like, the the meek will inherit the earth, right? So you take uh, the, the kobolds, and their spellcasters are the most powerful and dangerous creatures that sort of rule over their realms, and dragons actually aren't because they've been usurped. Yeah, flip things on their heads. When you do this sort of thing where it's the complete opposite, it seems completely new and fresh, but you had to do very little work to get there. Mm -hmm. You can do this with characters. You know, um, I'm thinking Star Trek, make a mirror universe opposite, right? A good character becomes evil. A dumb character becomes smart. Uh, Remember that in those mirror universe episodes, they didn't flip every single aspect, right? Like if you take Lenny from Of Mice and Men, don't make him both small and weak and intelligent, right? Like that doesn't make any sense. But you flip one thing, one defining aspect, and suddenly you've got an entirely new character. Mm -hmm. What if Lenny is a genius? Right. But still the giant hulking brute. Yeah, he doesn't need George anymore. Maybe George is angry about that. 
Uh oh. <laughs> he's still got a gun. Yeah. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't change that. <laughs> or one of my favorite things is to combine two things that you like a lot. And I honestly, I think a lot of authors have done this. Like if you take Middle Earth, Tolkien's Middle Earth, and you add the warp from 40K, you get the Wheel of Time, except that only men become psychers. Right? Yeah. Or, or only only men are subject to corruption from the warp. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you see Rand as like a living saint, basically. Or the... The, the dragon is like a living saint. Or uh, the god emperor of mankind before he... Uh, Oh yeah, you know, ended up on the throne. Sure, or maybe his early years, right? This is the very beginning when he's uh, before he's created the. It's a super long origin story. Yeah. <laughs> well, the wheel of time turns. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was not the beginning. <laughs> it was just a beginning. Right. Yeah, I think uh, the difference between copying and inverting as a creator is inversion allows for more speculation. Right, where copying is all about hiding the source and and sort of, um, you know, fitting it in seamlessly into a world, whereas inversion a lot of times is much more about extrapolating what would happen, what would this be like, how would this go, right, as you try and draw that inspiration. And inversion seems to work a little better on a macro level than on a micro level. Yeah, uh, I think authors who get bored with their properties or you know just want to sort of stretch their wings a little bit often do this you'll see this in those sort of what if series in comic books or else worlds other worlds mm-hmm. things like that you just change something right change something fundamental yep copying seems to work on a super small scale of like how do i get a tricorder into my D game yeah but inversion can go to like you said what does the world look like <laughs> you know what is this map mm-hmm. right? at, at that sort of huge scale yeah, copying I find works really well on those smaller details. Mm-hmm. You know, those things that sort of take forever to come up with. Right. Like, I mean, copying is kind of what we do when we say, hey, just like reflavor a stat block. Uh, that's also what the character creation forge is, right? <laughs> <laughs> We're just copying. Yeah. Unabashed copying. <laughs> Sometimes we invert. Uh, sure. All right. But lastly, the. Probably the most common thing that you're doing is just taking inspiration from TV shows that you've been binging or books, movies, video games, mm-hmm. nerdy stuff like that. Podcasts, your video actual game. plays. I, I, I wouldn't pay attention to podcasts. Yeah. The, the podcasts have terrible ideas I think in general. They're, yeah, and flash in the pan. They're all hacks. <laughs> I honestly think it's best to take kind of a kitchen sink approach to this Um Really, that's what's in your brain, right? We spend so much time reading and consuming this media that it's all kind of in there. And it's hard to trace exactly what came from where. And nor should you necessarily be doing that. You know, you're going to have these ideas that you you sort of append to something else. Uh, Just go with it. I think that's probably the way to get the most quote unquote original material. Because honestly, there's no such thing as original material. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that works. I think there's also a place for very specific adaptation, right? Where where your inspiration is Mr. Robot, right? So I want to run Shadowrun in a Mr. Robot world, right? I, I think you can do a more literal inspiration as well. Yeah, actually lampshade it, call it out. Hey, yeah. we're playing a Mr. Robot game. Exactly, mm-hmm. or and, and just identify that to your players. Hey, we're playing a game like Mr. Robot, right? Even if you're not taking the world, you're taking those themes. Okay, hear me out. Mr. Robot plus the warp from 40k. (laughs) 
I'm out. <laughs> Too dark. Now, this doesn't mean that you need to take all of the elements that you think you want to have in your campaign and like put them all together before you even begin. You know, most campaigns aren't plotted out in advance. Yeah, and, and I think you want to just kind of distill it down to what you need in the source material to get started and let the campaign kind of evolve from there. Yeah, I mean, we talked before, like, prep for each session happens after the last session, right? So what is going to happen next week is something that I'm thinking about this week. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I might have a general idea of, like, what needs to happen or what direction things are going to go in, but it's likely that maybe a plot twist that happens comes from a TV show that I happen to be watching or, like, a, a book that I happen to read. Or that, you know, I read relatively recently and I sort of jotted down a little note about it and I'm looking through, you know, sort of my idea log and going, oh, right, I wanted to use that. Now's a good time to cycle that in. Mm -hmm. So if you want to actively use these inspirations, I find it helpful to sort of reduce them down to a single sentence or concept to make them more modular or, or usable. You know, what is it that you really like about the thing that you just read or watched like what makes it compelling to you because that is the thing that's going to make it compelling to your players and that is the thing you want to port over so would you like to get into some spoilers and give some examples sure let's say you love the sixth sense and you know who doesn't okay so this is the standard for every Shyamalan movie <laughs> you love the twist ending right yeah <laughs> you like the fact that Bruce Willis was dead the whole time yeah so that's the thing that you want to use right and you, you want to go back and look at how the clues were layered in in the beginning that kind of foreshadowed it so that as you go back there's still that consistency to the world right, right. or it doesn't have anything to do with the movie itself except for that one little nugget of that particular twist it's like the pcs are going to realize that they or maybe some npc that they're interacting with has been dead the whole time mm-hmm and however you get there, totally up to you. Maybe that comes from some other inspiration. Maybe you come up with it on your own. Maybe you copy it directly from The Sixth Sense and, you know, invert it or something. Mm -hmm. uh, same thing with, like, The Big Lebowski where uh, she kidnapped herself. What? Yeah. The, uh, you know, the crime was a fake all along. Right? Yeah. And, and then it just gets into a question of why would you do that, right? What's the motivation there? What's the bigger problem to solve for your characters? Man. <laughs> and, of course, I think... One of the shows that everybody loves to pull from is Firefly. But there's so many different touchstones in that show that you want to narrow it down to one that you're going to pull because you're probably not going to be able to recreate the entire show in a game unless you're specifically playing a Firefly game. Mm -hmm. So do you love the camaraderie of you know a pretty large party? Do you love the fact that they're always like barely scraping by and they can never really get ahead. Yeah, like they're really competent, but they're always undersupplied, mm -hmm. right? Or do you just love the fact that like it's a Western in space and, you know, genre mashups are totally your thing. Mm -hmm. Great, pick two different genres and let's do it. Yeah, for me personally, it's always been Pirates of the Caribbean. I've been trying to get that to the table. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's why I've run three separate Pirates campaigns looking for that right mix. And like we said before, it's interesting that the one that ended up really working and sticking was the one that was in space. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that was the one that sort of gave the actual feeling of Pirates of the Caribbean that you were looking for. Right. Which is the idea that there's always something weird out there. Mm. Right. And then also 
you're constantly biting off something bigger than you can chew. That's Captain Jack Sparrow's whole thing, right? Is he is headstrong and confident as he moves forward, but he's almost always walking into something that's bigger than he expected. Yeah, and I think starting us as somewhat high-level, nearly rogue traders was giving us enough rope to hang ourselves with, mm-hmm. quite honestly. Yep. Whereas uh, before, I think it, we tried it in, in other systems and we just didn't have enough to work with. Mm-hmm. It, it's tough to bite off more than you can chew yeah accidentally Mm -hmm. in 5e you know we'll talk about that campaign more (laughs) as we go through our weekly recaps so once you've got you know your your pieces that you know that you want to use you just kind of need to throw them together using the previous techniques that we talked about you know copy liberally invert where you need to and make spin-offs and take inspiration from whatever it is that you find the most compelling so let's do that let's throw together some of these techniques let's bash together a little uh, a little micro campaign here all right so let's uh, start with the place right we got to get everyone together um, the most Isley cantina yeah I mean we're gonna change the name of course yeah I think that's that's a good idea like, does does the cantina even have a name I don't actually know it's the most Isley cantina okay all capital letters <laughs> everything in Star Wars has a name nothing is incidental don't you know this uh, of course okay uh, we're gonna call it um, los los Miley. Oh, great. <laughs> We're going to call it Rio Bravo Cantina. <laughs> um, and let's go ahead and uh, invert the planetary biome because yeah, deserts a, are boring. It's on a river. Yes, outside of a jungle. Perfect. Okay. Uh, and then, you know, let's swap the species around because, you know, you walk into a bar that looks like that with Rodians everywhere and, you know, it's pretty obvious you're in Star Wars. Yeah, I mean, let's uh, let's say this is a... This is a goblin hangout. Oh. Yeah. Well, it makes sense that like humans walking in are going to get dirty looks and mm-hmm. maybe challenged to a duel. Yeah. Perfect. All right. The Rio Bravo Cantina on the water near the jungle run by goblins. Perfect. How long did that take us? Like 30 seconds? Yeah. Well, it <laughs> took two of us though. Your <laughs> mileage may vary. <laughs> so we need a plot though. So what, what plot unfurls at the Rio Bravo Cantina, Ishan? Um, let's pick something out of thin air. Spaghetti Western. Uh, oh, I just saw Hateful Eight. Oh, okay. So uh, the party are bounty hunters that are hired to track down a killer. There you go. So instead of running from Imperial soldiers, they're actually going to stay here. Or at least on this planet. They're going to stay near enough. Yeah. You know, this is kind of their last port of call before they got to go find that bandit. That also makes things easier because then we didn't just like create this cantina and then leave it forever. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, you know, the, the goblins are hiring them because they need a little more muscle. But they're not real thrilled about it. Right. 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 It's probably sense. a hobgoblin they're chasing down. Oh, yeah. I remember and my the- Volos guy. <laughs> The resident Nilbog is like, look. Yeah, look. <laughs> I'll give you 10,000 gold. <laughs> teeth. I mean teeth. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So they need to go track down this killer. So we're in a, well, maybe it's not a chase, but it, it's some sort of slog, right? There's a journey coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe a journey down the river, like in a the heart of darkness. Oh, I like that. You okay. Know, as as they go further into the jungle, it's it's increasing madness that's uh that's surrounding them. Yeah, terrifying creatures. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also a few episodes of Archer that are like that. Well, so. that's the heart of archness. <laughs> that's where he goes, native. <laughs> uh, yeah, but so so as they as they progress through these events in the jungle, 
uh, maybe they'll begin to learn more about this hobgoblin they're chasing down and maybe understand why he is that way. And, and obviously, um, you, you can't force players to begin to lose touch with the goblins themselves, but uh, maybe some of them will think about that. Yeah, and of course, from here, you can spin off in whatever direction you want. It doesn't really matter. You're just sort of using Heart of Darkness as a base. Does Do they end up feeling more like maybe the Hobgoblin's actions were justified? They could, yeah. They might begin to identify with him, or maybe um, they start to fear that he's right. You know, that, that maybe they've chosen the wrong side in this fight, but they've still got a contract. Yeah, maybe some of them care, some of them don't. Mm-hmm. All right, eventually their journey is going to end, however it ends. Mm-hmm. But they're probably going to get to a location where something else is going to happen. Oh, it's I mean, it's going to be his hideout, right? Oh, yeah. So what does he hide out in? I mean, in the middle of the jungle, um, pyramid. Oh, yeah, like kind of a ziggurat, like an inverted ziggurat. Yeah, oh, okay, I yeah. like that. We, we literally turned it upside down. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's descending levels into the ground. Right, yeah. Okay, uh, under the ground, I'm just going to say let's just run the mummy. Oh, yeah, so it's full of traps. It's full of bizarre creatures. Right. It's full of, like, pseudo-magic. Scarabs, but not scarabs. Right. right? We're going to change those into different kinds yes. of creepy swarms. swarms. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, traps that are save or suck or yeah. die. Yeah, and traps that uh, serve as moral quandaries, right? Are, are you greedy? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They yeah. test you. I like yeah. it. Um, and you throw in a little bit of uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Oh, so you got some wordplay? A little bit. Okay. Yeah, and 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 again, moral quandary, right? Well, not it's a quantum, moral test. Yeah. Well, penitent man. Uh, that's a wordplay question. Slash though. halfling. It's that's a word. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's where you get into problems. How do you hit all creatures of all sizes? That? You know, the leap of faith. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, I mean, we can also throw in uh, some traps from like uh, like more magical in nature, right? To to kind of. Um, reflect how weird this part of the jungle is. So maybe we'll steal like the uh, the key trap from Harry Potter. Oh, Sorcerer's Stone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We got some riddles in there. Mm-hmm. We got some lore puzzles. Got some combat. Yeah, I like it. Mm-hmm. Move them out of order, right? I think there are like seven puzzles. I think you could in almost any game you could do basically those seven puzzles with slight changes in a different order. And people mostly wouldn't notice. Yeah, like get rid of the Cerberus and makes it make it a Manticore. Yeah, and not giant chess. Ah, uh, yeah, miniature chess, <laughs> obviously. I mean, Alice in Wonderland did it. That's where J.K. Rowling stole it from. Oh, so, yeah. I I would just go straight to the source. Okay. Yeah. The giant checkers. <laughs> <laughs> He's playing four dimensional checkers. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Finally, they make it through the traps. Probably right. Maybe they're all dead, but. Let's assume your story continues and they make it through the traps. Is there going to be a plot twist at the end? I think there really should be. Okay, which uh, which plot do we want to draw from here? I don't think it makes sense for him to be dead. No. Because undead, yeah, I mean, he could be undead, right? He could be a lich, but I don't know. That, that one doesn't seem so twisty as much as it is just another detail. I like the idea that, you know, on the journey they were sort of... Um, feeling maybe some sort of kinship or sort of questioning whether uh, he was in the wrong. Mm-hmm. So I feel like maybe that that should come into play here. Okay. So how would you do that? 
Maybe he is a killer, but it's not his fault. All right. And it turns out the killer is actually uh, a spirit inside a gem that he carries that is possessing him. Uh, I would call that, and well, I got that from an inversion of Jewel of the Nile, right? They're searching for the Jewel of the Nile, and he's like, oh, it's good. It's this big jewel, and we're going to sell it. And it turns out it's like a holy man. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, he's been, that he's been paid to bring back. Uh-huh. Okay, yeah, I like that. So I would lay that as some of the Hobgoblin's actions being prescriptive of him fighting off control of the gem. Oh, mm-hmm. Right, so he seems to be a madman because he's acting erratically, but it's it's bouts of him acting under the gem's control and him trying to resist it. Yeah, that would have come into play uh, when they were tracking through the jungle right. do one thing and then do like the complete opposite thing. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And, and as they learn, you know, his... his deeds against goblin kind right they they don't necessarily make sense he seems insane um and then that could also be the gem could also radiate the corruption throughout the jungle mm-hmm. right and, and once you purge the gem or or destroy it or whatever the jungle kind of becomes less primordial and a little more understandable kind of the the taint of the warp if you will oh Maybe the reason that the hobgoblin took the gem in the first place was out of a sense of duty, right? He's not necessarily protecting the goblins, but he is supposed to lead the goblins. And if the gem is corrupt, then he needs to, you know, take it away from civilization. Oh, man. Twist on twist on twist. Dun, dun, dun. The Nilbog put him up to it. Oh, here we go. It's always the (laughs) Nilbog. The Nilbog needs something to hate to keep the goblins in line so they don't get bullied too much by the hobgoblins. Good call. So a mutual enemy. All right. So party either is destroyed by hobgoblin and the gem or they, I think, probably slay. Probably slay him. Yeah, but but cleanse the jungle in the process. Yes. However, now there's this gem. Mm -hmm. What do they do with it? Bury it? Take it? Risk being possessed by it? Oh, right, yeah, I guess they might not cleanse the jungle. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if they begin to suspect the Nilbog in some way, perhaps a a dying monologue, they might try and use that to betray the Nilbog. Oh. You know? So many options. And I think all you need to do to figure out what happens next is... Turn it over to them. (laughs) (laughs) And hopefully they've been watching some good TV. Exactly. (laughs) So we should mention that there are some things that don't port over well to RPGs. And and these are a lot of times narrative conventions or, or mm-hmm. types of stories, right? So things with one storyteller, and especially if that's a first-person narrative. Yeah, how do you translate that to, you know, four to six people at the table? You can't really, like, parse out the important actions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it's also very difficult to plan out ways to tie actions of the characters into far future events yeah the way that a lot of those types of tight narratives do just because you don't know what direction is coming next right so a lot of times as gms we're trying to give that effect to the players but we're faking it because we're just improvising it as the opportunities arise yeah i think you hear a lot from novel writers or like script writers who say I didn't know how we were going to get there, but I always knew like the last scene. Right. You can't really do that with an RPG. Like you don't know who's going to strike the final blow. I mean, unless it's Emery. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and you know she's going to win. 
uh, yeah, you don't know if like the PCs getting together with a desperate gambit, if that's actually going to succeed, because it's kind of up to the dice. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you run uh, the Death Star attack at Yavin 4 in Edge of the Empire or, or Age of Rebellion, there's a good chance that the Death Star isn't destroyed, and now you're dealing with what happens after the Rebel Alliance is shattered. Yeah, what if your Luke rolls a 1? Mm-hmm. Fate point. <laughs> Or flip a light side point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it gets a little deus ex machina, machina e, you know? So you probably don't want to steal like entire story arcs because it won't necessarily go the same way. RPGs are inherently less predictable. Yeah. Though sometimes you can look for story arcs that mirror what you've already got and look for their endings. Mm-hmm. Right? That That works if you can find something that sort of matches what you've already progressed in your story and then complete the arc right with the inspiration that you found yeah especially if you're if you've seen something and you're going wow that was a really satisfying ending Mm -hmm. you know the way that all wrapped up maybe everyone had a happy ending maybe some people didn't right you know i think that's always like a question that gms are having the other thing is sometimes you'll see or read something where you think man that was not a satisfying ending that's a great opportunity to use that at the end of like your second arc. <laughs> it's your segue into the next arc. <laughs> the other thing to think about is that a lot of time stories with a single main protagonist mm-hmm. end up with a Mary Sue protagonist. Yeah. Uh, a, a single character whose weaknesses are well-defined, rarely exploited in novel ways, but is often hyper-competent. You can run, and this is just a problem as a role-playing game because you've can't have a single protagonist right. in most games. And this is a problem for GMs and players as well. I think often players will look to other media for inspiration for a particular, you know, PC personality or build or whatever. Just keep in mind like you aren't going to always be able to do the things that this person does in TV shows or or books. I think this is sort of one of the fundamental difficulties with having something like a superhero RPG mm-hmm. is like Batman never gets hit with a laser. Yeah, Batman like, also never has to share his book. You know, like, <laughs> like he has sidekicks, not shared protagonists. Yeah, if the spotlight remains on them too much, they're going to outshine other characters, which is perfectly fine in a book. But in an RPG, that makes them a DM PC, which are typically bad. Or like, a DM's girlfriend PC. <laughs> DM's boyfriend. Uh, true. <laughs> But actually, I don't know. I feel like that's totally a straight guy thing to do. <laughs> like, I feel like the girlfriend DM is probably going to pick on her boyfriend. Oh, yeah, which is fair and appropriate. Right. So I sort of think of, you know, a lot of us like to play Star Wars games or games influenced by Star Wars, but Anakin Skywalker is the worst model for a PC. Like he's just better at everything than everyone else, and he's the freaking chosen one. Hang on. Mm, I got to disagree with you, because when Obi-Wan had the high ground, it was over. <laughs> <laughs> so if his weakness is low ground, I mean, I don't know what to tell you, man. That's only a plus one to attack rolls. <laughs> it was enough. Maybe his weakness is lava. <laughs> oh, my one weakness. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think about... O- Obi-Wan, I think, is actually a good... PC character because he faces off against Boba Fett. Oh, sorry. He faces off against Jango Fett. And that was a really good battle, even though Obi-Wan's a force user. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. when I think about like, 
uh, how do you make sure that like Jedi and like non-force users are comparable? Well, you give one guy a suit of armor and missiles. Yeah, I, I the thing too is that Anakin Skywalker is a bad PC. Um, Drist is a bad PC, mm-hmm. right? Elminster is a bad PC. Oh, like the worst. They're also bad NPCs because they inherently outshine parties of people as well, mm-hmm. right? So if if they appear in your story and those kind of characters show up, they have to show up fleetingly. They have to hit quickly and get out of the way and usually they have to just impart some wisdom or information or maybe you know a a special item or something and then let the pcs carry it from there and not keep intervening otherwise it it becomes a game of six people who got helped out by somebody way more powerful than them right who could have just fixed it to begin with right it was just too lazy yeah so in conclusion uh steal steal a lot steal often Really, all the time. Lie, cheat, and steal. Yeah. I mean, the, the three tenets of being a GM. <laughs> what did you roll? I don't have to tell you. Yeah, I don't have to tell you. So I cheated. Where'd this come from? I don't know. <laughs> and that's how you make a great game. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, but actually, one thing to note, though, if, if you're going to publish this in some capacity, mm. if you're going to record it, um, or even if you're just going to, you know, talk about it with the players after the campaign is over. I mean, do reveal your sources, right? Because they give inspiration to other people and other people take them in different ways. So don't hide things forever because it's a great source. Share it with the community so that other people can appreciate it. Yeah, and if someone calls it out in-game, it's actually a good opportunity to be like, yeah, it's exactly like that, so you don't need to go through as much exposition. Or say, yeah, it's kind of like that. And then totally subvert it. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) You caught me, and now I'm going to wreck you. (laughs) Make an assumption out of character. I dare you. No, no, it's fine if you want to use metagame knowledge. Yeah. That's fine. (laughs) All right. Uh, Once we've advocated lying, cheating, and stealing, (laughs) do you hear that, Ishan? That's me assuming that the timer on the bomb is going to stop at one second, right? Right? (laughs) Yeah, well... If it doesn't, we better move on to the Character Creation <laughs> Forge and re-roll. Before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane, at Mundangerous, that's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan, at Evil Sends Carne, that's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show, at TPTCast. You can also email us, if you can't fit it into 140 characters, at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrillCast.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Total Party Thrill. So this week in the Character Creation Forge, we are building the Crucible. Uh, so Salem Witch Trials, is, is this what we're doing? I have no idea. Ishan, why don't you tell me? <laughs> what is the Crucible? It is, uh, it's cleansing fire, right? It's uh, purging your sins with burnination yours or everyone around you's maybe both okay yeah all right so i think we were looking at through volo's guide and looking at the scourge asimar which is the asimar we're gonna just have to agree to say it differently i'm fine with that which is the asimar who has the radiant aura that burns everything including themselves so once a day their like daily racial power is that they have this aura of radiance and uh once during their turn both they and then every creature within 10 feet of them takes radiant damage equal to half their level okay and then they can also deal radiant damage equal to their character level uh once per round with an attack either uh, melee attack or, or either weapon or spell attack 
Okay, so that's what we're building off of. What classes are we going to use to do that? What we're looking for is ways to keep everyone close to us because it hurts to be near us Mm -hmm. because we're so beautiful. That's that's it. Yeah, Yeah. we're beautiful and not smelly. Mm -hmm. So the build is Scourge Asamar, Light Cleric 9, Battlemaster Fighter 3, Oath of the Ancients Paladin 8. Okay. Now, I'm guessing there's a feat we're going to take in here because if you got to stop somebody's movement... Sentinel is a good way to do it. Yeah, pretty critical to the build. If they want to get away, they can't. Yeah, because if you hit them, they drop their speed to zero for the remainder of the turn. Mm -hmm. And if they try to disengage, you still get an opportunity attack, which will still reduce their speed to zero. Exactly. Okay, so we've got that out of the way. What are we using Cleric for? So the problem with the Scourge Osimar's racial ability is that you can only use it once a day. Mm -hmm. And if we're building off Sentinel, we need other ways to make people really suffer for being near us. So the Light Cleric gets the Channel Divinity, Radiance of the Dawn, which lets you use your action to deal 2d10 plus your Cleric level damage to all uh, enemies within 30 feet of you. And uh, once you hit 6th level, you can do this twice per rest. Mm -hmm. Also, at 7th level, you get Wall of Fire, which has an option to create a ring... This is one of my favorite uses of Wall of Fire, actually, <laughs> and and how I generally think about using it is putting it in a 20-foot diameter ring. Yeah. And like, yeah, fine. Either come in here and walk through it and take damage, uh-huh. or stand in there and don't move and get burnt alive. Right. So I love the idea that you basically turned on your uh, Scourge ability. They're standing next to you. They're trying to get away from you. Actually... We're now in the Ring of Fire. Yeah. <laughs> like, which one of us do you think is going to drop first? <laughs> Let's dance. So on top of that, Fighter gets you Action Surge, which means you can activate your Scourge ability, because unfortunately that's an action, and then drop your wall all in the same round. Or you can actually, after you have six levels of Cleric, do Radiance of the Dawn two times in a row. Just boom, boom. 4d10 plus double your Cleric level. Which will be at least six. Right. And Battlemaster Fighter at level 3, you can take Trip Attack, which if you use on those opportunity attacks that you get from Sentinel, drops their speed to zero, and now that their speed is zero, they can't stand up because you have to spend speed in order to stand up. Mm -hmm. So now they're stuck on the ground next to you, offering advantage on any of your melee attacks, and they're still taking whatever damage it is from being close to you. Maybe the Wall of Fire, maybe uh, your Scourge Radiance. And then Paladin helps you with that heavy single target damage because you're kind of calling people out. So you want to be able to take them down pretty quickly because you're all taking damage. But Oath of the Ancients at level 7 also gives you resistance to spell damage, including from Wall of Fire, which is good because that's fire damage. You already have resistance to radiant damage, which is uh, what your Scourge ability does. Yeah, and you can't get double resistance. Right. So good enough. So one super handy thing about this um, and, and a use that I really like is if you grapple a target mm-hmm. who is in your wall of flame, you are dealing <laughs> spell damage to that target, which triggers the radiant consumption bonus damage, mm-hmm. but you're also holding them in place. Yeah. <laughs> so they can't go anywhere. Yeah, and you're going to be strength wisdom based anyway, so you're going to have a pretty decent athletics check. Mm-hmm. And, of, and of course, you've also got those trip attacks. So, you know, knock them on the ground, prone, in the wall of fire. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's a bad day if you get yeah. get up close and personal with this scourge. <laughs> All right, so Shane, 
Tell me about your crucible. So my crucible comes from a line of angels who serve a, a, a deity of uh, triumph. Hmm. Um, so and, and, Nike, and, goddess of victory. Kind of, but maybe <laughs> a little bit darker than Nike. Okay. Because uh, it's not just about victory. It's also about like kind of overcoming challenge. Right? Nemesis? Nemesis is probably better. Okay. Though now super dark. <laughs> Somewhere in between. Okay. Uh, but but the idea being that if you can uh, withstand the challenge, right, um, if you can uh, overcome, then you're worthy. And uh, and the scourge Azamar of this, uh, this divine lineage are sort of the testers of mortals. Because obviously... Oh. Mortals aren't going to overcome, you know, most angels. Yeah, oh yeah. Right? The, the, unless, you're, unless you're fight. Jacob. Right, yeah. yeah. But that's an unfair fight. So the, the Azamar are sort of the ones who test mortals. So it is, uh, it is my Azamar's divine calling to uh, engage enemies in this way uh, and, and challenge them to escape from a literal crucible. I like this. Lord, what scrubs these mortals be. Right. <laughs> You know, and if you do sort of a chaotic good kind of God, you mm, can get mm-hmm. away with it. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you know, it's you get a little friendly fire in there. It's like, hey, guys, look, I got a thing here that I do. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> give me a wide berth. I think lawful good is also fine here, too, because it's basically, look, these are the rules. Right, yeah. The rules are you need to survive. Right. Okay. <laughs> Whether friend or foe, and, right. and I may not test you immediately. <laughs> I like the idea that maybe if someone survives their crucible, like it, it doesn't matter what they did, maybe they're evil or they're a bad guy. You've been chasing them. If if they survived your crucible and escaped, uh, like I can't, I can't chase them anymore. Right? Like, they no, they they're innocent. I, I love the idea of that being the way that you would fall. Oh. Right? You, you might be as part of a character arc, and hopefully this would be a short arc. But that might how you become a fallen Azamar is that. Uh, you continue to pursue justice against somebody who has passed the crucible. Oh, I like it. And then you've done great for the world, but done poor for your calling, so you would have to deal with those consequences. And then your redemption arc is becoming a protector awesome arc, because that's... Well, yeah. It's more OP. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Ishan, what is the backstory of your crucible? My Asimar, uh is actually a vessel for a great evil. An empty vessel? Yes, at first, <laughs> and now just full of pain. Okay. Spending all her time trying to contain it, to to keep it from escaping, right? Sort of um, uh, suffering so that the world doesn't need to. But eventually learning, you know, hey, because the, you know, uh, the Scourge, I think, can start doing this at level three. Mm-hmm. Eventually learning, well, you know what? This is in me, and it it's always going to be in me, but I think I can use this in channel its energy for for good oh okay yeah i like that shane doesn't know this but this is a jinchuri key from naruto you're right i don't know this you can whisper it you can say it out loud i still don't know it <laughs> that aside so uh yeah they are using the power of this entity that is trapped with trapped inside them um and i i would actually if i were this a player of this character i would talk with the gm and say you know what? Uh, I actually, if I die, I want it to escape. Now, at low levels, I would think that probably your character doesn't know that. You know, 
tell the GM just, you know, whatever you think it is, like, I, I want it to escape. And maybe at low levels, it doesn't, like, just murder the entire party. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, it escapes and becomes some sort of, like, um, uh, NPC antagonist. Yeah, like a revenant or something. Something like that. Or, you know, some sort of, like, you know, mid-range demon. Sure. Whatever. Uh, at higher levels, I would like to know that, like, this is these are the consequences of failure, right? Like, I am, I'm containing this. And I'm using it to try to do good in the world. But while while I'm out there, like if I fall, if I fail in my duty, it's going to escape. And eventually, hopefully, the rest of the party knows. Look, if the Asamar dies, we've got a we've have a Baylor to deal with. Yeah. <laughs> so let's not let that happen. Oh man, why why are you using the Baylor? You're hurting yourself. It's one way to spice up just about any combat, huh? <laughs> target target the Asamar. See what happens. <laughs> And then I think if I was playing this character, you know, maybe it wouldn't work out this way because of the dice, but I think I would be thinking, you know, someday I'm going to use this thing. I'm going to use, I'm going to use it to its full extent. I'm actually going to like, you know, turn on my, my ability and then rush into the maw or whatever, or throw myself down a dragon's throat and then explode into a Baylor. Yeah. Uh, probably a good way to go from, uh, from demon to devil, you know? <laughs> fight evil with evil <laughs> alright if you want to support the show the easiest way to do that is to leave us a 5 star review on iTunes and if you're willing to help us out we'll read your 5 star review on the air you can also find us on Stitcher it's like a Pandora for podcasts if you like or favorite us there the algorithm will help other people find us alright Ishan, we've got a 5 star review and it is your turn this is this is an awesome podcast 5 stars by Clayton Thompson Total Party Thrill is a terrific source of information about D&D. I really appreciate the time and talent that they put into each show. If you love the game and want to learn more about character creation, playing, running games, or dealing with difficulties within the game, this podcast is definitely worth your time. My favorite segment on the show is the Character Creation Forge, where the cast rolls up multi-class characters, typically at 20th level. They show you how to adapt the 5e rules to create characters based on particular genres, e.g. an Errol Flynn-like swashbuckler, my favorite or an Indiana Jones-esque archaeologist. Bottom line, it improves your own character creation and instructs you to pay attention to all the skills available in particular classes. One request, please publish the stats or notes of the characters you roll up on the site. They'd be a great resource. I agree. They'd also be a lot of work to go (laughs) back through. We're working on it. We we definitely are working on it. Uh, We would like it to be searchable. And honestly, I think we probably have to do it soon so that we know what we've made already. Yeah, we're getting to that point. Yeah. Yeah. But the search is enabled now. (laughs) So there's that. So get on that. Um, Okay. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? We're continuing our series on player personality types, and we're talking about butt kickers. And in the character creation forge? We're building Dalsim from Street Fighter 2. I pronounce it Dalsim. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Did you call it M. Bisson? No. No. M. Bison. Vega. No. Vega. <laughs> Sagitt. <laughs> That's it for episode 76 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we've lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.